In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about the oh-so-innocent things which will shatter us. This is episode 14 of season 14. That beautiful symmetry tells us that our season pass rent-to-own program is now available. As always, when you purchase 14 individual episodes from any one season, you are eligible for an upgrade to a full season pass. So if this episode is the 14th you've purchased for season pass 14, or if you end up purchasing 14 at any point this season, you can email us at admin at thenosleeppodcast.com and we will upgrade you. Please make sure to let us know which email address you use for your memberships. And to make it easier for us to find your email, please use the subject line SP14 Upgrade. That's SP14 Upgrade. And of course, we are grateful for your support. And to all of you who listen to our show, we appreciate your wonderful support. As our gift to you, we have some audio horror stories for you, and they're coming up right now. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we join Jessica, a mother simply looking for a nice, fun toy for her young son. And where better to get a cherished plaything when you're on a budget than a yard sale? But in this tale, shared with us by author W.C. Jones, The seller seems oddly hesitant to part with the toy submarine that Jessica has her eye on. I join Jessica McAvoy, Ellie Hirschman, Aaron Lillis, Jesse Cornett, and Nicole Goodnight in performing this tale. So be careful if you manage to win over a seller who doesn't want to acquiesce. Just leave it and walk away. Otherwise, you might discover it's tainted. How much do you want for this toy? The woman sitting in the rocking chair looked as if she would die of old age before she answered. I had stopped off at this two-story house because of the moving sale sign poking out of the beginning of the driveway. The place was nothing spectacular, and the people running the event, 
The aforementioned old woman, along with a man who appeared to be in his 40s or 50s, seemed to take better care of their stuff than the house itself. It was a plastic submarine, baby blue in color, about the size of my forearm, that I had picked out of the old wooden chest with a silver dollar hammered in the center of the lid. The name Nautilus was written on the side and letters faded so badly I could barely make them out. Two metal wheels jutted out from its sides, with a small chain attached to a makeshift anchor at the front. The top of it held a small compartment with several portholes covered in clear plastic to resemble glass. By all rights, it was junk, but there was a certain uniqueness that pulled at me, and I listened. She lifted her head slowly and wiped spidery white hair out of her eyes with a liver-spotted hand. Those toys are tainted with bad memories. I don't know if I should sell them. The man suddenly stepped up beside the rocker. Oh, come off it, Mom. There's nothing wrong with them. Besides, we're leaving tomorrow and we'll have to take everything we don't sell today with us. Oh, stop it. The woman flung a curse at him before turning back to me. I suppose three dollars is fair. I started to reach for my wallet, but the man quickly stepped from behind the table and approached me. His hair was a perfect horseshoe of black and white, with a clean bald patch in the center. So, you like old toys, eh? Hmm, I'll sell you the whole lot for thirty. What do you say? I thought about it for a moment, but decided one impulsive buy was enough. I thanked him for his generosity, laid three rolled-up dollar bills in his palm, and left. I didn't bring the toy with me when I went to pick up John at the bus stop. I watched him climb off the bus, and my heart began running a marathon inside my chest. He looked up and smiled at me when he reached the bottom of the steps. Watch this, Mom. Then he bent both his knees and leapt to the ground. It wasn't a great distance to cover, but I mentally scolded him for being so careless. Then he got to his feet and sprinted toward me, his Pokemon backpack swinging back and forth. I dropped to my knees and held out my arms something I had never failed to do and probably wouldn't stop until he found it weird. He returned my affection, but with a bit of reservation. What's wrong, honey? He looked up at me under a mop of dirty blonde hair in need of a pair of scissors. You think Dad would have liked my jump? I slowly nodded. He would have loved it. I walked him to the car, but... Despite my best efforts, he noticed the tears sliding down my face. Thankfully, he didn't say anything. I took the blue submarine off the kitchen counter in all its old-fashioned glory, even pulling the tiny anchor down until the inside mechanism began to retract it. But John eyed it with only feigned curiosity. What's... N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S mean? I was wondering that myself. I opened my iPhone's web browser. Here, let me look it up. I punched in the weird combination of letters and let technology perform its wizardry. 
Ah, here it is. According to this site, it's the name given to the submarine from the original 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. John gave me a quizzical look. It's a novel about these people who get in a submarine and ride it deep into the sea, only to be attacked by a giant squid monster. His eyes lit up then. He grabbed the toy and turned it over, examining every inch. Did the squid eat them? Or did they shoot it with torpedoes or missiles or something? I smiled and shrugged my shoulders. I don't know, honey. I've never read the book or watched the movie. This revelation took a little of his excitement away, but I immediately thought of a way to bring it back. Hey, I'll bet they've got it on Hulu or Netflix somewhere. Maybe we could watch it tonight and see for ourselves. Yeah! John took off and held the submarine out in front of him. He made it bank deep right before rising above his head, only to dive straight down past his knees. That night, I found the movie on Netflix under their classic section and made a big bowl of popcorn. The two of us sat and shoved it into our mouths while watching what I considered the most boring movie of all time, but he loved it. He held the submarine up in front of him, making it dive and move when the submarine on the screen did the same. The night couldn't have gone any better. The next day, I was sitting in the living room, enjoying a smooth lemonade and sweet tea combination when John appeared in the hallway. His eyes were wide, and he didn't speak at first. He just stood there. I had never seen him like this before, so I set my drink on the coffee table and walked over to him. Honey, what's wrong? I don't like him. You don't like who? His eyes shifted to mine and a chill crawled up my spine. The man. The man outside the submarine. (sighs) It was just your imagination. No, I saw him, Mom. Honest, I did. Okay then, honey. Where did you see him? Outside the submarine. John looked down at the floor. I was getting ready to shoot some enemy subs, and I looked out one of the round windows... And there he was. He lifted his head and locked eyes with me again. He just stood there smiling at me. Then he spoke, Mom, and no bubbles came from his mouth. What did he say to you? He called me Junior. John tore his eyes away and looked back toward the staircase. Wow, that was some scary daydream, huh? He turned back to me his eyes betraying hurt. I'm not lying. He punched a hole in the window and let the water in. He's not real, honey. You just have a really active imagination. Without another word, he took me up the stairs to his bedroom. The door hung open and toys of all shapes and sizes peppered the carpet, everything from airplanes to military tanks, all of them lying on their sides. Various socks lay crumpled next to an unmade bed, and a trail of shirts and shorts led to an open closet. I started to say something about all of it, when I noticed the plastic submarine sitting up on its wheels in the center of everything. Something about it caught my eye. 
there was a shininess to it, and it was only when I got close enough to make out the faded letters on its side that I saw why. My chest tightened. Several beads of water slipped down from the top and dripped onto the floor to create a large puddle surrounding it, soaking into the carpet. I looked around for an upturned glass or bottle, but didn't find any. John stood next to me and pointed at it. You see? I told you he let the water in. I struggled to say something, but nothing came out. Instead, I stood there and watched as the puddle around the toy grew larger. It took a while, but I convinced myself that the liquid had come from inside the toy itself, that its previous owner had taken a bath with it or gotten it wet and the water seeped into a crack on top, only to be released by John jostling it. Never mind you that any moisture would have evaporated a long time ago. He wasn't convinced at first, and insisted that he had seen a man outside of it. Okay then. The two of us sat at the kitchen table a few days later. It was a Saturday, and John waited for the ding of the oven to signal his Tony's cheese pizza was done. In order to see this man, you said you were inside the sub firing missiles at other subs, right? He nodded. Well, how could you fit inside that small toy? Plus, there's no oceans in Arkansas. The only submarine here is that poor tourist attraction in Little Rock. But I was inside the sub. I was. I know that, honey. But that was only in your mind. I got up to check on the pizza. That's where this man came from, wasn't it? You imagined him being there, just like you imagined driving the submarine. I pulled out the small tray, laid the pizza on top of the stove cut it into eight semi-perfect sections, and laid two of them on a plate in front of him. He stared at the steaming dish, but refused to consider it. To try and encourage him, I pulled it back to me and blew on the pieces before sliding it in front of him again. After a few moments, as well as a cold stare, he picked up a piece and raised it to his mouth. Do you promise... His question caught me off guard. What? Do you promise I only imagined him? His eyes sought mine. The answer was obvious, but I had trouble responding, almost as if unconsciously I still wasn't sure of it myself. Yes, I promise. He suddenly smiled and began to eat. I fixed my own plate and joined him. He avoided the toy submarine most of the day. I would occasionally sneak a peek into his room, only to find him playing with something else. The first time, it was a tank, complete with several buttons on top which made annoying sounds. He approached the tiny submarine, but stopped a few inches away and turned right, then rolled away toward a pile of socks. When I came back an hour later, the tank lay on its side, as if it had been hit by a torpedo, and he was sitting on his bed, waving a toy airplane with a front that resembled a mouth full of sharp teeth through the air. 
the submarine still lay where it was before. There was something almost sad in its appearance, so I decided it was a good time to draw John a bath. I made sure to bring the neglected toy with me, along with a rubber shark and an octopus that was missing one of its arms. You can have the squid attack it like we saw in the movie. I held the tiny blue submarine out to him. He sat in the tub eyeing the shark and the octopus I had already tossed in, but the latest addition proved much harder. But I don't want to. Not right now. Oh, come on. There's nothing wrong with this toy. I dropped it into the water where it made a small splash and bobbed up and down in the ensuing waves. John immediately scooted away and pulled his knees into his chest. My face grew warm. Seriously? This is ridiculous. I reached in to take it out when my cell phone sprang to life downstairs with Sweet Home Alabama, my mother's ringtone, so I rushed out to get it before the music stopped. I reached the bottom step, but the sound ceased before I got to the phone. Worried, I dialed her back and waited. She picked up on the fourth ring, and then proceeded to inform me of several injustices she had suffered at the hands of the DMV. Then she moved on to the president. I don't remember half of her words, because I kept thinking about John. I saw him trying to get out of the tub and slipping on the floor, cracking his skull on the rim of the toilet, while I listened to useless ramblings. Without a word, I hung up and bolted up the stairs two at a time. Once I reached the top, I used the balcony rail to propel myself forward to the open bathroom door. I don't know what I expected to see, but what I did drained the color from my face. John was curled up in the corner of the tub, his eyes closed tight. His face was a mask of dripping brown and the water looked as if someone had thrown dirt into it. The small submarine floated on top, mocking both of us. Not knowing why, I wrenched it from the water and threw it out the door. Then I scooped John up, his dripping body soaking my shirt and jeans all the way through. He opened his dirt-smeared eyes. Hot tears slid down my face. My god, baby, what happened? He touched my face. Then he buried his head into my shoulder and sobbed. <laughs> I took him to his room, passing the dirt-smeared submarine in the hallway, and dried him off. I struggled to stay calm as I dressed him, hating the feeling it gave me, like he was completely helpless. He stopped crying once he was clothed, and I sat him on the bed. Wait here. I'll be right back. I went out to the hallway and took the submarine off the floor. I stared at it. Brown beads of water trailed down its sides, and the left wheel was bent. There was nothing inherently dangerous about its design, but... He touched my face. Without another word, I picked it up, reared back my arm, and threw it against the wall as hard as I could. 
The thing shattered except for the wheels, throwing bits of dirty blue plastic everywhere. Mom? What's going on? Stay in your room for a few more moments. I picked up the pieces of the toy and tossed them into the bathroom trash can. Then I sat on the toilet and looked at the bathtub in bewilderment. The water was still a murky brown, but I could make out dark spots of actual dirt floating on the surface. How is this possible? He wasn't that dirty when he stepped in, was he? You can come out now, honey. When John walked out of his room and saw the pieces in the trash can, he did something I never expected. He came up and hugged me. His little arms didn't quite fit all the way around my waist, but I took comfort from their warmth. His eyes were red from crying, but they now held a liveliness I was glad to see. He laid his head against my stomach, and I wrapped my arms around him. I don't know what's going on around here, but I think it's over now. John insisted on sleeping in my bed. I felt bad about what happened during his bath, so I agreed. He fell asleep a lot sooner than I expected, and I watched him, no more than a pronounced lump under the covers. I pushed back his hair and gave him a kiss on the forehead. A smile crept across my face when his eyes twitched but didn't open. I awoke later with a sense of urgency I couldn't explain. Darkness swam before my eyes, and I blindly reached over to the right for the lamp. Light tore away the darkness, forcing it back into the farther corners of the room. I blinked a few times until the various blurs of color took on definitive form, and then sat up, turned to check on John. He had rolled over on his side and taken the covers with him. My head ached, so I decided to take some Tylenol. I tossed my feet over the side and stood up. The room tilted a little, but I maintained my balance. The bathroom door hung open a few feet away, revealing nothing but darkness inside it. I took a step toward it, then stopped as something moved in the corner of my peripheral vision. I turned and stared at the place where the lamp's light didn't reach, where the darkness lived and breathed, its respiration a harsh, dry rasp. Except, it really was breathing, and the form standing within its folds shifted its balance just enough to allow a sliver of the lamp's light to reveal half of its face. The skin was dirt-streaked and wrinkled, the area around its eye black and hollow. A thick layer of mud enshrouded the visible half of its lips, and they curled up into a grin. Then they parted, and something wiggled out and dropped into the darkness. Junior. Then it stepped forward into the dim light. My eyes widened. Standing there was a man wearing a pair of jean coveralls, 
Only one of the straps lay broken and lifeless, twisted into a knot by a dried clump of mud. Dirt covered the rest of him, almost as if it were a second skin. He started forward, the light revealing more of his face. The right side squirmed with maggots and worms that fell in a steady downpour from the exposed skull and empty left socket. The other half of his lips were nothing but exposed teeth, stained brown with earth. He came within a few feet of the bed, and I noticed the small black hole on his chest that radiated outward, where a bullet had ripped his overall strap and punctured his heart. I tried to scream, but couldn't. Instead, I did the only thing I could think of once I saw the leather strap clutched in his fleshless hand. I threw myself on top of John. You won't stop me this time, Caroline. The hatred in the thing's voice sent icy tremors throughout my body. My face hovered an inch above John's, and when he suddenly opened his eyes and saw my expression, he burst into tears. (laughs) The leather strap bit into my nightgown and I had to force myself to remain still, despite the lightning of pain streaking across my side. There was a brief whistling sound, and the leather struck the top of my back. I involuntarily jerked upward and almost toppled to the floor, but I held my composure. Junior's got to learn some discipline. I was pulled off of John so violently that my head struck the dresser before I hit the floor. Darkness threatened to consume everything, but I refused to lose consciousness. I tried to push myself up, but something stepped on the small of my back and forced me back down. I could only open my eyes halfway, and the room spun out of control, threatening to take me into oblivion. I could still open my mouth, though, and I cried out as loud as I could. He's not Junior! The pressure on my back intensified, forcing my ribs into the carpet. John screamed again, and I heard him struggling within the thing's grasp. Let me go! It was hopeless. I tried again to push myself off the floor. The effort failed and a sudden hot pain informed me that at least one of my ribs was broken. I wanted to help my son. Needed to help him. The pressure on my back ceased. I pushed myself off the floor as the bedroom door crept open. All hope fled my being, replaced with a helpless realization. My son was going to die. I turned in time to see the mud-drenched figure holding him. Wait! Please! The ghastly figure stopped halfway through the doorway. The man's decayed face turned toward me, that hideous grin still etched on what little remained of his lips. John struggled in his left arm. You've already learned your lesson. A fresh worm crawled out of the hole near his bottom lip and fell to the floor. Now Junior needs to learn his. But 
not Junior! And I'm not your Caroline! His smile faltered a little. Then he turned away and started to walk out the door again. My name's Jessica! The room was spinning again, but I fought to keep myself awake, realizing that I would lose my son forever if I allowed the darkness to take me. And his is John! The ghastly apparition stopped, but didn't turn around. Then where is Caroline? Blackness swirled at the corners of my eyes, and they began to march forward. I wouldn't last much longer, so these next words had to count. The only question was, would they be enough? I took in the deepest breath I could as the room spun out of control and the darkness crawled over my field of vision. Then, with as much authority as I could muster, I spoke. I don't know where she is, but she's not here. And you shouldn't be here either. My lights grew dim, but I forced myself to continue to make sure I got it all out. Just look at your face. That hole in your chest. You're not alive. You don't belong here anymore. I lost the strength to sit up and collapse to the floor. I tried to say something else, but the darkness took me away into the void. As John let out another scream from somewhere that seemed far away in the distance. My sleep held no dreams or nightmares. I would even hazard to call it somewhat peaceful until I opened my eyes and saw that I was lying in a hospital bed. I tried to sit up, but a sudden searing pain prevented it. I looked around and found the nurse call switch on the corner of a small table, holding an uneaten combination of mashed potatoes, corn, and what appeared to be a piece of roast chicken. None of it mattered. All that mattered was finding out. I pressed the thick red button and waited, my heart performing cartwheels. A young woman with light brown hair done up in a bun walked into the room and smiled. Oh good, you're awake. Where is he? Where's who? The woman's smile was offensive, almost if she was deliberately mocking me. But then that hopeless feeling came back, and I was certain that she genuinely didn't know who I was referring to, because I had been brought in alone. He took John, didn't he? I couldn't save him. Well, he's being questioned by Detective Mahoney right now, but he'll be able to come back when they're finished. My eyes lit up, and it was all I could do not to leap off the bed and give that nurse the strongest hug I could muster. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. When John walked into the room later holding the hand of a young police officer wearing a slightly worn hat, I could no longer contain my joy. Despite the searing pain from the two broken ribs I had received, I sat up and opened my arms. The officer was kind enough to hoist him up to my level, 
and the two of us shared a hug that I thought I would never let go of. I recovered fairly quickly, and as I suspected, the police investigation went cold. John told them all about the man outside his submarine, but they believed the way I had at first. They tried to find more witnesses, thinking someone in the neighborhood had to have seen the perpetrator leaving the scene, but nothing turned up. There was also no physical evidence found to explain the marks on my back and side. That doesn't matter, though, because my son and I know what happened, and that's enough. On our way back from the hospital, John happened to see something out of his window that excited him, so I pulled over to find out what it was. At the beginning of an adjacent street, crudely tied to the street sign, was a thick piece of cardboard that said, Moving Sale in thick black letters, along with an address. I shivered, then pulled back out onto the road. There are few phobias more understandable than arachnophobia. Yes, yes, we've all heard the saying, they're more scared of us than we are of them. But come on, have you seen those beasts? They're not scared of us. They're plotting, planning, scheming. And in this tale, shared with us by author Joseph Yankovich, we meet a man who's fully aware of the machinations of these abominations even after he seemingly successfully killed one. Performing this tale is David Alt. So don't trust the platitudes, don't trust your eyes, don't even trust that squished mess on the sole of your shoe. Never let your guard down, never relax around a spider. You see what you care about, and I care deeply about one thing. For me, people of all shapes and sizes, in all sorts of dress, aeroplanes in the sky, cars, birds on branches, dishes in the sink, dirty clothes on the floor, all easily exist outside my awareness. Not because I'm oblivious to the world, but because they make little impact on me. The grandest things, enormous things, objects I could hardly miss, easily dissolve into the background. If some need arises, I would engage in a deeper investigation, but in this way, I hardly differ from most of humanity. But one thing always sits at the edge of my consciousness. Even the slightest movement or the smallest change in the room alerts me to its presence. On this particular evening, I settled into my favourite chair with a thick novel and a cup of cocoa. I'd just finished a chapter. 
Resting the book on my lap, I took a sip of the warm chocolate. I was about to place the cup back on the end table when a movement, barely more than what one might expect from a floater in the eye, caused me to stiffen. Turning my head sharply, I saw it. The spider. A large, hairy one had emerged from under the sofa and had already made its way halfway across the wood floor. The book slid from my lap onto the floor. The spider stopped, startled. My hand trembled. The cocoa sloshed in the cup and came dangerously close to spilling onto my trousers. I didn't move more afraid of the spider than it was of me. Or so I thought. The good-sized spider, at first quite still, began a small rhythmic movement of its eight legs. I considered that it might be getting ready to make a mad dash for cover, but it instead turned its body so that those eight simple eyes were facing me. Even at this distance, I could tell that's what it was doing. The leg motion stopped. Hand still shaking, I carefully put the cup on the table and stood. The spider didn't move. I knew right away the sturdily built, stocky arachnid was a wolf spider. I feared them all, but that hadn't stopped me from studying them. No, thy enemy. (laughs) This was a particularly large one, nudging two inches. Even from this distance, I could see its orange-brown hair with the telltale darker stripes running lengthwise on its body. Maybe it was just because I knew, but I felt I could see the eight eyes, two medium-sized one on top of its head, two larger ones center, and four small ones lining the bottom of its face. And in that grotesque face, I knew there were two large fangs. I also knew those fangs might painfully puncture my skin, but they didn't carry venom that would injure me. It could bite all it wanted and I'd be fine. Anyway, uh, spiders in general were usually shy, ready to retreat. I knew all that down to the last footnote. And it didn't matter one bit. They could show up with presents of flowers and chocolate and I'd still feel my insides twist and my heart beat faster, everything going into panic mode. All my knowledge about them, and it was expansive, never could replace the simple primordial fear I had. Just a glimpse of one scurrying across the floor dissolved the world around me and only that eight-legged interloper existed. I couldn't function until it was gone, and by gone I meant dead. I stepped back frantically, trying to find a weapon, a magazine, a newspaper, anything to rid the house of this menace before it got away. Even when my glance fell on the book spread-eagled on the floor, the spider still held its ground as though making calculations on the time it would take me to get the book and rush at it. I tried to rid myself of such foolish thoughts, but the spider suddenly started to pulsate on its thin legs as though getting ready to rush me, making such thoughts all the more plausible. Keeping an eye on the arachnid, I slowly went for the book. The spider made a small step forward and I pulled back. Forget the book. Maybe I should just rush over and smash the creature under my shoe, but but just the thought that I might misjudge my aim and the spider would scurry aside and slip over my shoe and under my trouser legs was enough for me to shudder. In a swift movement, I reached down and grabbed the book. I pulled away so fast I tripped on the chair leg and fell on the floor. 
momentarily frozen, I stared at the spider through the V of my shoes, even more terrified of being on the same level as it. If it rushed me now, I wasn't sure I could rise in time to escape. I clutched the book to my chest and got up on one knee, constantly eyeing the waiting and, yes, the thinking arachnid. It had to be thinking, or why else would it hold its ground so confidently and not try for the safety of the sofa or some crack in the floorboards? This one, unlike so many others I had exterminated with a rolled magazine or a book thrown, this one wasn't intimidated. Had it learnt from watching its brethren become squashed, or, or, or was it certain of its power over me? They did have that power, I realised, just looking at those two segmented hairy bodies supported on spindly legs, picturing them creeping along an arm or unseen along my back, hidden somewhere under my clothes, could make my bile rise in my throat. A primitive fear gripped me each and every time I saw one. It might only be a picture or a spider in a cage, no matter, I felt them shuddering as though they were already on me. The fear went beyond being bitten. It felt genetic, a part of me so deep I almost thought I had lived at some time as a luckless, trapped insect. Caught in a web or pinned by large, hairy legs, had I watched that grotesque, multi-eyed face lowering, fangs dripping, ready to send me into a paralyzing weight for my innards to liquefy? Ugh. It almost seemed the only answer, as silly as it might be, to account for this entrenched fear. I could easily pinpoint when it started. Years ago, when I awoke from a nap on the couch and sensed the tiniest impression on my arm barely above the sensation of a, a few nerves firing or a barely perceptible itch, my arm lay across my chest, my forearm scarcely a foot from my face. I opened my eyes ready to scratch and stared into the frothy eyes and furry body of a gigantic spider. Its splayed legs let its ovoid body rest against my skin, and it seemed to be watching me, studying me as I slept. Things might have been different if, when I threw my arm wide, the spider would have slipped off and onto the floor where I could have smashed it. But it stayed there as though those pointed legs were dug deep into my flesh. Then, as though it realized the danger it was in, it scurried up my arm and into the small opening made by the edge of my short-sleeved shirt. The prickling movement sent my whole body into turmoil. I beat my shoulder first with an open hand, then with a fist, hitting myself over and over. Even when I stopped and didn't feel anything crawling around, the panic didn't stop. I couldn't be sure the devious creature hadn't slipped to a safer spot, waiting. My heart pounded and I shook, crying out like someone trapped. I tore off my shirt as though it was on fire and the noise of popped buttons hitting the floor. Frantically, I brushed my hands over my bare skin, trying to feel something being dislodged. And I did feel it. Only it was the soft bursting of a body across the back of my shoulder. A cool sliminess spread over my skin along with a slightly rough texture. Even then I wasn't sure and grabbed my shirt and violently rubbed away the mass. I stared down at the dismembered body and even then couldn't feel any sense of calm. At that moment I was sure a fear I hadn't been aware of previously seeped into my psyche, pumping out a poison I couldn't stop. From then on I hated them, feared them, couldn't know they were nearby and 
Even avoided movies or documentaries about them. I sprayed inside and outside the house, kept clutter at a minimum, and developed an acute detection of motion that needed only the tiniest portion of my retina to register one of the invaders. But still, they got in. Not many now, but it only took one. Worst part, my loathing of these scurrying bugs had only grown. And so I stood stock still, clutching my book, staring down at the annoyingly calm spider tapping one or two legs, standing its ground. This one really isn't going to be intimidated. Even when I finally made the smallest move toward it, the little creep seemed almost to dig in and defiantly lean my way. This was a standoff, and already I could feel my own courage wavering. But this couldn't last. I knew the invader mustn't be allowed to win. Once it won, well, I, I didn't want to think about it. You don't accept the fact that the enemy will have any control over you. I took a step forward. A drop of sweat curled down my eyebrow and dropped onto my cheek. I gripped the book now in two hands, each one on its shorter sides, making it the most controllable object to throw down. There was a lot of floor between the spider and any place to escape. If I got close enough, even if the spider made a dash for it, it wouldn't have the time to get away. Two more steps and I felt sure the odds were piling up in my favour. I lifted my foot slowly, ready to make a dash for the insolent spider. That's when it made its move. But the little hairy bastard didn't do the obvious. Instead of heading for the sofa, its closest escape route, it sped directly at me. The whole thing seemed implausible. Suddenly, the two-inch spider seemed like a charging rhinoceros. Segmented legs rising and falling carried it swiftly towards me in an obvious attack. Yes, yes, attack was how I saw it. And I just stood there paralyzed, my mind a swirl of horrible visions and sensations. I wanted to move, throw the book, but all I could finally do was backpedal to a wall. I raised the book as though defending myself from a blow. <laughs> but the spider, that damn thing, seemed to know what it had accomplished. It stopped, just like that, and surveyed me like I was a cornered insect before scurrying to its left toward the fireplace. I saw my chance, my body felt a jolt of adrenaline, and I rushed from the wall and flung the book on the run just as a spider reached the brick hearth. The book, a carefully tended volume I wouldn't have dared to fold the corner of a page, sailed above the spider on a perfect trajectory. The spider disappeared from view below its descending green binding. I stood for a moment watching to see if the creature emerged from the book's edges. Satisfied my little ordeal had ended, I placed a foot on the book and bored down on it. I'd learnt even seemingly crushed these tormentors had a way of surviving, especially on carpets. Better to be sure, regardless if it meant a smear on my favourite novel. You use the weapon at hand. No sacrifice was too great to be rid of this menace. Removing my foot, I placed my toe under one edge of the book and flipped it over. Even then I fell back, just in case. The book landed on the hearth. I stared at it and saw nothing. No splotch. No slimy mess laced with dark legs, nothing but the neatly incised, unmarred book title. I kicked the book to be sure. It slid from the hearth to the floor. The spider didn't appear. I didn't understand. Such a well-placed throw couldn't possibly have missed. How? 
Breathing hard, I tentatively reached down for the book. All the while, my eyes glanced about in case the little beast had a trick up its sleeve. No sooner did my fingers close on the book when I saw the answer to the mystery of the disappearing spider. Along the edge of the hearth, where the brick met the wood floor, I saw a hole. A jagged black spot where the cement had chipped away. From a distance, it probably looked more like a shadow, nothing I would have noticed in a million years, but, but there it was. The perfect getaway. I, I looked closer, but not too close. I wasn't about to have that creepy thing dart out at me when my face got near. The thought of it leaping onto my cheek made me shudder and I stood. How deep in could it be? It couldn't be that far. Not with all those bricks and cement resting on a wooden floor base. Maybe it huddled just within, its multiple eyes focused on my every movement. My spirits rose. Trapped. The word came to me like a mind balm. The obnoxious bug had let its confidence, its toying attitude, lead it to its doom. <laughs> Quickly, I shoved the book against the hole with my foot and ran into the kitchen. Fumbling amongst the detergents and other cleaning paraphernalia under the sink, I grabbed the can of Raid, made expressly for spiders. As though holding a deadly weapon, I strode like a vengeful god into the family room. I uncapped the spray, made sure I had the nozzle pointing the correct way, and placed my foot on the side of the book. With one swift movement, I shoved the book aside and pressed the nozzle. The jet of liquid spewed into the hole. I kept it up even as the pungent fluid began forming a puddle on the floor. Satisfied, I stood back and imagined the death throes going on inside. Even if it emerged, I knew it wouldn't live long. <laughs> I reveled in victory. Even though only temporary until the next invader. I got a towel and mopped up the excess moisture with my foot. I placed the book on the end table, unable to do any more reading. Glancing about the room, finger on a nozzle, I made sure all was safe. Returning the bug killer to under the sink, I poured myself a glass of wine and sat at the kitchen table. Still, I watched the hole, picturing the spider legs curled in a death posture. The entire room reduced to that spot. My breathing settled down as I sipped the wine. Now I thought I could go to bed. I swallowed the last few drops of Merlot, enjoying the calm that enveloped me. The hole along the hearth remained devoid of any movement. I had won, but this victory had been the hardest of all. This spider hadn't seemed a mindless creature like the others. It, I had a hard time admitting it, had focused on me. This was more than a simple stimulus-response attitude. There almost appeared to be thought behind its movements. I had a hard time with that and felt sure that in time I'd see the fallacy of the whole thing. I was shaken right now. Still, I'd be sure to take better precautions from now on. Somehow, I'd figure it out. Rising from the chair, I placed the wine glass in the sink. Turning off the kitchen lights, I stepped gingerly into the family room, keeping a wary eye on the hole. Unfortunately, a lit floor lamp stood near it. Keeping my feet as far away from the hole as possible, I reached over and turned it off, then the other lights, and went upstairs. Undressing, I lay in bed and watched television for a few minutes. The programs bored me, but more than that, I felt all keyed up. Considering the last hour, it was no wonder. 
Better to get a good night's sleep. I turned off the television, pulled the blankets over me, and surprisingly, fell asleep quickly. And the dreams came as they had to. The mind battling a conscious threat couldn't discard it easily in sleep. The battle resumed, making the previous outcome irrelevant. Again, the spider had the starring role in the evolving nightmare. Once again, it intimidated me, standing its ground, but now... Now it oddly seemed distracted by something else. Something deep in the furniture. The dream held no answer as to what it was, just a tantalizing indication this spider wasn't on some haphazard mission. The move against me came again in the dream, but this time it contained a vague notion it meant more. I reacted with the same horror. Once more, it drove me back and slipped into the fatal crevice in the hearth. Even in sleep, I could smell the poison as I sprayed it. The ill-begotten sanctuary glistened, dripping with the liquid death. But this time, the creature didn't die. As I lay victorious in bed, drifting off to sleep, it poked its head then legs from the hole and slowly, slowly made its way across the floor and up the stairs to my bedroom. Legs grabbing the threads of my blankets, it climbed onto the bed, tiptoeing its way to my pillow. I wanted to rise up and flee, but none of my muscles worked. As though a paralyzed insect, I waited as the spider settled next to my face, basking in my warm breath, legs lightly tapping my lips. My eyes snapped open. I sat up stiffly. The nightmare lingered, causing me to rush to the center of the bed where I crouched, looking back at the pillow. There was only the indentation from my head. Breathing hard, I looked up at the white expanse of ceiling untarnished by a black blemish. The back of my pajamas felt cool with sweat. A dream. That was it. Just this side of forgetfulness, the memory of it hovered. Pulling together the evaporating connections, I realized it tried to point something out. The sliver of the dream difficult to make out. A thought, really. What was it about the spider that I had missed? Its actions were aggressive and yet almost protective. Strange word to be thinking of, protective. Protect what? Perhaps I was supposed to back away from it, give it time, but I hadn't and it trapped itself. Whatever its motivation, I had won, but suddenly any thought of victory was shattered when I thought of the whole. Could the damn thing still be alive? Maybe the dream had been my mind working to correct a mistake. Of course, I thought I'd been foolish to have left the opening untended. Filling it would have made sure you always had to be sure. Sliding off the bed, I made my way down the dark hall to the stairs. Something prickly brushed against my foot. I fumbled for the light, heart beating faster, ready to throw the vase from a nearby table if necessary. The blaze of light showed nothing, only the bottom of my pyjamas where a frayed edge rubbed against my skin. Flicking on the downstairs lights, I cautiously made my way to the family room. Funny, I thought, how foreign it seemed in the middle of the night, like I didn't belong there. Nothing moved near the hole in the hearth, a hole that appeared bigger now. Light glinted off the residue of raid I had sprayed. At first I grabbed my book to cover the cavity, but decided instead to crumple up some paper and shove it in. A little shot of polyfiller would finish the job next morning. Contented, I walked to the stairs and glanced back. 
I remembered how staunchly the spider stood its ground in the centre of the room, almost expecting me to flee. Taking a chance, but for what purpose? It ended up being suicidal anyway. And yet here I was, bringing my tormentor back, even as just a fanciful creation. I went upstairs, but the tension wouldn't subside. I sat on the side of the bed, staring out of the window at the moonlit night. Black shadows from windblown branches trembled on the carpet, lit a ghostly white. Again, something brushed against my bare foot. I pulled my legs up and yanked the threads dangling at my pyjama bottoms. All I succeeded in doing was lengthening them. It couldn't possibly have escaped. I'd sprayed bugs before, spiders even, and they died. They might struggle a bit or skitter away, but they always slowed and curled into a final death throw. Even if the spider had slipped from the hole, just touching the pesticide would have finally made its way into its nervous system and killed it. Then again, this spider seemed to be more astute. Jeez, now I'm thinking about it like some bright student. But I had to admit, it wasn't like the others. More aggressive, more single-minded, more attuned to my fears, more something... My anger rose, and I realized what I had done wasn't enough. The spray, the paper, they weren't enough. I had to be sure. Nothing else would do. Back into the family room, I turned on all the lights and stood before the hole. For a moment, I just concentrated on it, trying to determine the best course of action. The wadding I'd shoved in remained intact, but obviously this wasn't enough. The only answer gripping me had to mean there was another way out. The hole was a decoy. You expected just a niche, but there was a back exit. Sort of like that movie I'd just seen, The Third Man. Harry Lyme would disappear, but there was only a kiosk in the wide-open plaza. Who'd hide in that? But when it was moved, there was an entrance to the sewers. Must be the same thing here. It had to be tested. In the kitchen, I found one of those skewers for making shish kebab. I used the tip of it to flick out the paper from the hole. Tentatively at first, I poked the skewer into the hole, pulling back after the first foray. When nothing emerged, I poked harder, hoping I'd finally impale the dead enemy, but it always came out empty. More dishearteningly, the skewer only kept entering a few inches. No matter which way I frantically probed, the point ran into brick and cement. You couldn't have got out. I repeated the phrase before returning to the hole, plunging the skewer point in with a hard thrust. Then, glory, wonderment, feelings akin to a lottery win when I pulled it out. Stuck to the tip was my hairy, balled-up antagonist. I kept staring at it, my ego swelling like a swordsman who has defeated his greatest foe. Carrying it like a trophy, glaring at its misshapen form, I opened the front door and snapped the skewer so that the dead spider flew into the yard. I closed the door, stood there realizing how my breathing came in clipped bursts as I tried to convince myself there was nothing more to this than eliminating one more adversary. The horrible arachnid had simply fired the fears in my brain into ideas that had no merit. I had won, and that was that still my mouth felt dry. Shutting off the lights, I returned to the bedroom, still feeling the elation of victory. A hard-won victory at that. Maybe this particular spider had learnt watching its brethren die, but its death would show there was no winning. The rest might now appear, but they had to know they were no longer any match for me. 
I lay in bed, arms behind my head, staring at the ceiling. The moonlight that streamed into the room, illuminating furniture, television, walls, seemed comforting. A growing calmness made the bed feel softer. Even the air felt like a gossamer sheet ready to envelop me in sleep. And I started closing my eyes. A curtain coming down on the terrible evening. A curtain to begin rising on more pleasant dreams. But that didn't happen. The initial joy sparked like a wire being cut, and deadness ensued. The numbers on the clock at the far end of the room glowed. Blood red, they flicked to a new minute. A rivulet of sweat slid from my chest along my skin like something crawling. My nerves fired and I aggressively rubbed the sheet against my side, looked, saw nothing. Sleep, I kept telling myself. Sleep. Sleep. Instead, though, another thought kept intruding, something I never consciously considered, but which I now realized had hovered just on the brink. There were so many spiders I had dealt with, killed with my own hand, or died unseen from my sprays and poison granules. Suddenly, the numbers seemed more than I imagined. Hundreds? Thousands? No. No, not that many, but it seemed like that. Maybe. Always they appeared. Kill one and another seemed to surface shortly thereafter. Perhaps it was days in between, but I didn't think so. Could I even think of a day when I didn't deal with one? Always they found a way in, like... Like they were being drawn here. Like they were drawn to fear, to deep hatred, and needed to keep trying, wearing me down and waiting for some moment when they might become stronger. No, no, that couldn't be. In my sleep, they could easily have overpowered me, congregated in such numbers I couldn't resist, destroying me with enough bites to compound any ineffective single-fang injection. I thought of my walls filled with them, teeming amid the studs and insulation, crawling along wires, pattering across ceiling plaster, watching me from tiny apertures, each waiting a turn to emerge and confront me, unseen but there. And that was their weapon. No venom into my bloodstream, just fear into my mind. They knew. Of course they did. Time was on their side, and already I understood they were winning. Now, half asleep, I tasted the poison of capitulation. The dead one downstairs had done its job well. They must have sensed I tottered on the verge, and that last one sacrificed itself to plunge the fear deeper, a fatal thrust. I listened. Maybe just dreaming, but I felt sure I heard tiny feet, thousands of them tangling each other, feasting on the fear spilling from my paws. I wanted to rise, run, burn the place down, but I knew I couldn't do that. I'd lay here and wait and listen and feel the fear slowly paralyze me. Could the sensation I now felt of a tiny weight falling on my toe like a fold in the cloth collapsing be simply the unraveling of tension and the slow movement of the sheet along my leg? Could it be muscles tingling with spreading relaxation? and that light weight pressed against my stomach must merely be the tautness of anxiety loosening. A lovely dream. But why do I hear the refrigerator snapping on, frogs outside, a car going by? I don't want to open my eyes. I'll just lay here in this twilight world. Let the feelings happen, like the new one. A quiver on my chest, a gentle stroking through the cloth to my skin. I didn't want to open my eyes, but I do. It sits there on my chest. <laughs>
The colours muted, just this side of black. The dark legs displayed. A small glint from the eyes as they catch a stray moonbeam. It watches me, inches from my chin. The other one was dead, I now clearly realise. No mistaking the difference, I knew enough to realise what gazed up at me. Everything was the same, but the unnaturally large, bulbous rear on this one told me something else. I would have liked to scream, but the paralysis of fear was complete. The swollen rear moved like wind-blown ripples of water, like a breeze on fur. The spider's legs seemed to dig into my chest as though anchoring. The surface of the rounded back changed and now had a frothy movement as though the spider's rear segment had a life of its own. My eyes remained transfixed on the roiling motion, not unlike looking at a compacted mass of ants. Such a good mother, I understood. Dad's dead, isn't he? The motion increased, the shapes tumbled and slid over each other. The time had come. Mum had done her job, carried the eggs in a silken globe around her abdomen until they hatched and the small babies, maybe a hundred, scampered up onto her back. Tiny legs entangled, a moving carpet of bodies growing stronger on their safe perch, getting ready. The spider stared up at me, perhaps feeling my racing heart pumping furiously in a frozen body. The spider shuddered time. The children rushed from her back to take their place in the world, spilled across my chest, over my neck, and across my face, finding places to hide. Growing up in the countryside, surrounded by boglands, can lead to many urban legends and myths. Sometimes people who live there have seen unspeakable things, and they do anything they can to warn others. But do we listen? In this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, we meet one such woman who spent her life warning people about what lurks in the bog. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews and Andy Cresswell. So heed the warnings, avoid the danger, just stick to the paths. Ah, but you're curious, aren't you? You're gonna go looking for 12 hands. I've been telling people for years to stay away from the bogs outside the village. They rarely listen. It's not their fault, I suppose. We are a curious species by nature. And when you hear a tale as unbelievable as that of Twelve Hands, 
you're bound to want to try and see it for yourself. Still, I try to convince them otherwise. I tell them about my first encounter with her, and that they should steer clear of the wetlands she calls home. I spent a lot of nights down at the pub, retelling my story. The locals have heard it dozens of times. They know the legend as well as I. But it's not for them. It's the tourists that need it. I often wandered the bog pathways when I was a child. My family wasn't well off. Dad had fallen in with a drink when I was barely old enough to walk and could hardly pull himself out long enough to find steady work. Mum did what she could, taking odd jobs around the village to make ends meet. Laundry, cleaning, cooking. And when times got real tough, she'd put me to bed and disappear until late into the night. I'd wake sometimes to find her coming in with her hair and makeup a mess, her stockings bunched up in her handbag. I asked her once where she'd been. Her smile was thin and her eyes watery and she just hugged me close. She smelled of booze, smoke and sadness. I didn't have many mates. We were all skint, but me more than most. And the other kids knew it. They teased me, ran from me, called me names. They said if they got too close, they'd catch the Macquarie curse and their families would become like mine. I got into some proper rows as a girl. Bad as any of the lads' scraps, especially when they brought my mum into it. After a particularly nasty one on school grounds, the head teacher told me he'd kick me out if I started another one. To escape him and the other children, I started taking my walks in the bog. The dangerous places are bogs. What looks like solid ground will give way beneath you the moment you set foot on it. The shallow puddle breaking up the pathway will swallow you to your waist, and that's if you're lucky. Getting stuck in the mud and mire is one thing. Going under entirely is different. It was the stuff that had given rise to the likes of will-o'-wisps and kelpies, created to keep people safely out of the bogs, and in our village, to the myth of twelve hands. I knew where to put my feet, though, and I didn't believe in my granddad's folk stories. I built up an impressive little nest of sorts out there. I took books and what treats I could squirrel away in plastic bags, and kept them in a broken basket I'd found. I even managed to nick a blanket from a clothesline to spread out on the ground. It made for a cosy little getaway where I could forget about all the shite that had driven me out there in the first place. It started with the creeping certainty that I was being watched. I was stretched out on my stolen blanket, trying to make sense of my maths work, when the hairs along the back of my neck rose in a prickle. A quick glance around showed that I was still alone, so I tried to shake the feeling off, but it persisted until I sat up. I squinted and took a longer, slower look around. A ripple across the nearby patch of water caught my eye, and I traced it back to its source. 
a pair of pointed ears. Great and long had broken through the surface and swiveled towards me. As I watched, they began to rise slowly until I was staring out at the gaunt face of a horse. Its eyes were sunk deep into their sockets and clouded over. It whinnied softly, an exhausted, desperate sound of a dying animal begging for help, like a horse that had become trapped in the bog. My grip had tightened on my pencil until it trembled in my white fist. A gnawing, frantic feeling sprouted in my belly and spread like slithering weeds throughout my body until it tangled around my heart and all I knew was fear. It whined again, its head bobbing barely above the water's surface. I knew about Twelve Hands, the monstrous, horse-like creature that was said to dwell beneath the peat. Of course I did. But it was only a made-up thing meant to keep kids out of trouble. The water rippled again, and the creature began to move. It was coming toward me. I leapt up and legged it back to the village, screaming about twelve hands all the way. And then he crashed into a group of my schoolmates playing in the street. They teased me and called me names while I shouted at them to listen to me. I'd seen twelve hands. It only made them push me harder. Finally, I grabbed Jimmy Farrow with both hands by the front of his shirt and shook him until his head snapped back forth. She's out there! She's real! Their jeering quieted, and Jimmy recovered enough to backhand me across the face, sending me reeling. Show us then, you freak! I begged them not to make me. I'd managed to get away once, but... Who was to say I'd be so lucky a second time? Jimmy gave me an ultimatum. Prove my words, or he'd make me eat my teeth. The others crowed in agreement. That I was a girl, and a smaller one at that, didn't matter when their blood was up. I could already taste iron where he'd split my lip. I briefly thought that taking the beating would be preferable to going back out on the bog, but Jimmy shoved me forward. Go on then. Reluctantly, I dragged my feet down the same path I'd just come up with a gaggle of kids trailing close behind. When we reached my little camp, Jimmy and his friends kicked up my blanket and knocked my books into the water. One of them tossed my maths book carelessly over his shoulder. It splashed in the water behind him. While they tore through my things, I looked past them to the filmy eyes boring into us from just above the bog's surface. She was silent as she drew closer to the shore, where the other children were digging through my stash of sweets. I took a stiff step back and tried to croak out a warning. It was drowned out by the explosion of water as twelve hands pulled herself up beside them. Her upper half was that of a starved horse, withered away to a bony frame. Instead of legs, she scuttled, spider-like on six pairs of thin humanoid arms. Before any of them could do so much as scream, twelve hands pounced. She caught Jimmy in two of her hands, her skeletal fingers closed tight around him until they dug like 
talons into his flesh, and she quickly enveloped him in a crushing embrace. He vanished from sight among her many limbs, but his screams lingered. The other children scattered with terrified cries. In their rush, they shoved me aside and I fell on my bottom where I remained, rooted with fear. Twelve hands pulled Jimmy closer. A cloying, rotten odour filled the air and Jimmy's screams turned to shrieks. There was a crunch. Jimmy howled. A wet, smacking sound followed. Gradually, Jimmy's struggles lessened until Twelve Hands' grip relaxed enough for me to see her horse belly open into a gaping moor lined with rows of tiny, jagged teeth. Red stains ran down her hands. Jimmy was gone. I stared up at Twelve Hands, and there was no power in heaven or on earth that could make me move while her milky eyes were fixed on me. She lowered herself into a crouch with a toss of her head and slowly lowered herself back into the bog. She stayed at the water's surface, only her ears and eyes visible, and I could feel her watching me as I finally found my feet and ran. This is the same story I tell to any outsiders who will listen. Don't go out there. She's waiting. That's what I told the American couple who were in the pub a few nights back. They'd had a few and become loud, belligerent. Before they got anyone too riled, I managed to pull them aside and try to talk to them. They made fun of my accent, forgetting it was them that had the funny way of talking here, and pushed the glasses of water I requested for them to the floor. When they'd finished having their go at me, they switched to complaining about how dull our village a stopover between their tour of cities was. I gave them a few good spots to visit, but told them to stay out of the bog and why. They laughed at me, like so many others had before. Now, almost the whole village is out looking for them. They were last seen heading out on a trail leading to the bog. They won't find them. They never do. Another couple of tourists lost in unfamiliar terrain, they'll say, same as they do every time this happens. I joined the search party, as is my custom, and walked the familiar trails with my torch, calling their names. As the others gave up, complaining at the late hour and the settling cold, I let myself fall behind until I was alone. I sat down, more stiffly now than the first time I came to this spot and I stared out over the bog they had had a fair chance I told them exactly what was out there but we humans are curious by nature you tell us not to do something and it makes us want to do it all the more you tell us something unbelievable we want to see it for ourselves I learned that a long time ago. I kicked the blooded shoe that had been tangled in the peat into the water. The surface rippled once where it went in, and again from further out. I also learned how much easier life could be with one less arsehole in it. A pair of long and pointed ears appeared against the black water, 
followed by pale eyes. Her soft whinny broke the night's silence. I smiled. <laughs> they never listen, do they, old friend? Sometimes it might feel like your parents smother you, that they won't allow you to do anything, go anywhere, seemingly just to control you. It can be frustrating when you know there's so much more to see and do in the outside world. But in this tale, shared with us by author Antonio P., we discover that staying home and staying safe is often the best option. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Nicole Doolin, Peter Lewis, Nicole Goodnight, and Mick Wingert. So keep to the house. Don't stray too far outside the boundaries. Yes, maybe it's overly cautious, or maybe you're the hunted. parents should never have taught me how to read. I guess it goes without saying that they shouldn't have given me so many books to read. They didn't know it, but I often overheard their arguments about letting Nikita and I read so much. My mother was opposed to it. She said it led us to ask too many questions. But my father always objected. He said there were only so many injustices they could commit in our sad, lonely lives. He always won those fights. Knowing what I do now, I wonder if I would have been happier if I hadn't learned how to read. Then I never would have known that there was a better world out there. Back then, escaping into the world of a book was the only way I could be free from the dull drag of our isolated, miserable lives. I really do wonder if I would have been happier if I thought that our lonely cabin in the woods was all there was in the world. That, and of course, the bad men. I read countless books about people who wanted to escape the city and live a rural life. I wondered how they would feel about that if they had grown up seeing the same trees on the same hill in the same cabin. Some people wrote they felt free in the woods, but for me, those large trees were nothing but prison bars. Naturally, my older sister Nikita and I had asked my parents a thousand times why things had to be like this. Why did we have to live a life of utter solitude? We were furious when we were out playing and saw a snake or a bird which we wanted to chase, only to be brought back and scolded by our mother. It just wasn't fair. But once we were old enough to experience an attack from the bad men, we never complained again. They always seemed to come at night. I'm not exactly sure why. Our father kept us locked in the safe room in the basement with our mother until after he warded off the attack. 
those nights were horrifying. Hearing screams from both my father and the bad men as they fought some terrible battle we could only visualize in the anxiety of our imaginations. But he would always come back, safe and sound. Most of the time he was really tired, but unscathed. He was almost always covered in blood, but it was never his own. I would sometimes ask my mother what the bad men looked like. She would get quiet and uncomfortable. Sometimes she said nothing at all. But when I pressed her, she would sometimes eke out a couple of details. She said there was generally nothing extraordinary about them on the surface. If you were to pass them on the street in a city, you probably wouldn't even know what they were. It was when they were hunting that things turned nasty. Even though they remained human, there was a look that would come across their faces, which would bespeak malice and rage. Their eyes would sometimes turn red. Dad always carried the weight in the family. It was him that would leave every couple of months to fill our pantry in the basement with food. He was also always restocking our assortment of automatic rifles, which he used abundantly in his fights against the bad men. It seemed like a lonely, thankless job. I'm not sure if I ever told him how much I appreciated all he did for us. I know Mom certainly didn't seem like she did. Mother always seemed like she was disgusted with everything around her. But there were moments when I saw her staring off into the woods that I caught a glimpse of something else. Something happy. It's been two years since I saw them last, but it feels like a small eternity. It was during a particularly bad attack that everything changed. My father, usually cool and complacent about attacks, was visually frightened as he shoved us into the vault that was the safe room and whispered to my mother, There's a lot of them tonight. Isn't there always a lot? Not like this. It's like there's an army out there. Well, what are you going to do? My father cocked a pump-action shotgun. What I always do. But I might need your help this time. I think they're finally catching on to us. If I must. My father departed, and my mother locked our vault from the inside. Once the battle outside began, her anxiety really started to show. She grabbed Nikita by the shoulders and pulled her into the corner of the room for privacy, which was ridiculous, since the room was so small. Nikita, I've told you everything you need to do if something happens to us. My 16-year-old sister broke, and tears started to come out of her eyes. Mom, no, I... I'm not ready for this. Don't, don't talk like this. Shut up! I've told you all these years that you need to be ready for this. You need to be strong. Be strong for your sister. Protect her. Without even saying goodbye, my mother left Nikita trembling in the corner. I sat petrified in the other corner, unable to do anything other than stare at the door. The sounds of battle upstairs had gotten closer than I had ever heard them before. My mother threw open the door, zipped out, and slammed it shut almost faster than I could see. But it wasn't locked. I looked to my sister, knowing that mother wanted the door locked, but Nikita wouldn't move. 
Her sobbing intensified and her legs broke beneath her as she fell in an emotional mess. Looking back, I have no idea how I had the strength to walk up and lock that door. Maybe it was because I was already so numb. At any rate, doing so would save our lives. I could hear the sounds of gunshots fill our home. I could only imagine what was happening outside. The fight seemed to go on forever. I'm not sure when, but at some point, the snaps of bullets stopped and were replaced by the sounds of punches and scuffling. It sounded like they were wrestling up there. Kill that female! After that, I started to hear the sickening sound that my imagination told me was tearing flesh. But that only lasted a few moments before everything went quiet. Hope surged through my veins and gave me the strength to stand up and walk to the door, waiting for one of my parents to knock and tell us that everything was all right. I jumped back and heard several more bangs and slashes. I automatically fell into the terrified arms of my sister. Now too scared to cry, she grasped me so tightly in her that I thought I was about to suffocate. We watched with horror as the thick, metal door started to show dents. I was about to scream when I heard a faint hissing sound. Immediately, the banging stopped and was replaced with footsteps and coughing. I could vaguely hear the cries of orders to fall back. Neither of us could move for an entire day. It may have been longer than that, but eventually Nikita found the strength to finally open the door. What we found was horrific. Dozens of bodies lay scattered around our basement and up the stairs, some with gun wounds, some with bludgeoned faces. Despite my desire to find our parents, I couldn't help but take a look at some of the bad men. It was the first time I had ever seen one up close. I was surprised to find that not all of them were men. There was an occasional woman Though, from the deadly expression of hatred on their faces, you would have thought it was some sort of demon-man mix. They all wore more or less the same attire. Long black trench coats, heavy-duty boots, and an assortment of antique-looking guns. They were of various ages, but they all looked very fit. I got pulled out of my observation by the cries of my sister. She was frantically screaming for our parents and looking with dread for their bodies. We never found either of them. Nikita changed a lot after that. She adopted the parent role in our relationship. She became stern and serious, more so than mom ever was. I think she must have blamed herself for what happened that night. She must have constantly asked herself, how things may have been different if she had just done something to help our parents. I think the only thing which kept her sane was her determination to not make the same mistake again. Mom and Dad had always talked about moving. They said if the hunter attacks ever got too intense, we would move to a different location. After the attack, we thought about it too, but we had no idea where we would go. So we decided to stay and wait for another attack. If one came, we would move. It was a risky decision, especially considering how bad the last attack had been. But we were two teenage girls 
in a world we could barely understand. Several months passed without an attack. Even though the sting of our parents' deaths was still fresh, some light eventually came back into our lives. A smile, a chuckle, and then a laugh here and there. After some time, my sister was finally vulnerable enough to tell me how she blamed herself for everything that happened that terrible night. But she said she was determined to keep us alive, no matter the cost. That first month was a hellhole of anxiety. We were sure the hunters would come back any second. But preparing for the next attack helped to take our minds off the incessant weight of worry pressing down on us. One month passed, and then two, and then three. Before we knew it, a year had elapsed. Even though so much had changed, we somehow seemed happier than ever before. We read almost all day, every day, sometimes alone, sometimes to each other. Still, we hardly made a dent in the massive library in our basement. Our personal favorite were romance novels, many of them cornier than I care to admit. We would talk for what seemed like hours about some sexy cowboy coming to sweep us off our feet and take us to some secluded ranch where none of the bad men would ever come near us for the rest of our lives. Stupid pipe dreams. If only we had just left then, maybe we would have stood a chance. It was in late August, which used to be my favorite time of year. Those days when the summer is dying and you want to lay all day in the sun while you still can. We were sitting on the roof, enjoying some cheap romance novel in the fading light of a gorgeous purple sunset. It had been nearly two years since the attack which took our parents. I was 16 and Nikita was 18. Nikita was reading and I was listening lazily. We were nearing the end of the novel when I heard the first gunshot. I looked up wildly to see what my sister shot at, but instead saw a plume of red erupt from her shoulder. <coughs> Nikita clutched her shoulder while simultaneously sliding off the roof. I also screamed and slid off after her. Our cabin wasn't very tall, so it wasn't much of a fall. But when I got to my feet, I saw Nikita cringing and sitting against the side of the cabin. I scrambled over to examine the wound. It was shallow, but was bleeding profusely. As could be expected, she was in great pain, but it still seemed like too much for such a light wound. I had seen my sister pull a raw nail out of her foot without hardly wincing, but now she could hardly breathe. White steam curled from between her clenched fingers, but nothing was on fire. What was happening? A second shot fired, and the wood by my head erupted. I whipped my head around to see one of the bad men approaching me. A long, white-brimmed hat covered his whole face, except for his wide, wicked, almost inhuman grin. Instead of shooting at us, he unleashed a sword from his cloak. At the last moment, he grabbed the blade and swung the hilt at us. I barely registered this, my instincts took over, and I ducked the swing, then slapped the man in the face. It seems silly now. 
I had been trained in how to kill these men my whole life, and the first thing my brain could think to do was slap. I don't know if it was adrenaline, but somehow my slap was deadly. The man's head swung around and soon was followed by his body. I saw blood and white flecks of teeth fly from his mouth. I didn't hear a crack, but from the way his head spun, I could only assume he was killed instantly. I stood, awestruck by my own strength. Nikita brought me back to Earth. She grabbed my arm and practically threw me in the cabin. I had failed to notice the line of bad men closing in around our home. Get to the basement now. No, I'm not going to let you fight alone. This isn't a negotiation. Do what I say. Glass flew in a million directions. The bad men had already shot out every window of our small home. I looked at my sister. The argument silently ended. We would both go to the safe room. We scrambled downstairs. I slammed the massive door shut just before bullets rattled on the opposite side. <gasps> Pull the kill switch. I ran to one of the walls and pulled a lever. This was my father's last line of defense, and we were pulling it after hardly even putting up a fight. But my fear was so consuming that I pulled it without even thinking about what would come after. The earth shook. I plugged my ears and crashed to the ground until the explosions stopped. They were followed by a profound silence. I looked up to see Nikita sprawled on the floor, still conscious, but growing paler by the second. Taking an assault rifle with me, I slowly opened the door, but it wouldn't open. After throwing my shoulder against it several times, it finally gave and let in a mass of dirt and pebbles. <gasps> the explosions had blown away nearly half of our cabin. I stood at the bottom of a tall heap of dirt and rocks. I had very mixed emotions. Our home was gone forever. But on the other hand, we had stopped the assault. And now there was no reason why we wouldn't finally move out of the wretched place and start a new life somewhere far away, just like we'd always dreamed. I turned around, and my heart stopped. My hope instantly evaporated as I saw my sister staring forward blankly, the life in her eyes gone. No! I ran forward and fell on my knees. I wanted to tell her to stop choking around. I wanted to tell her to wake up. I even wanted to scream, but the massive lump in my throat didn't allow me to. I could only let out a few painful wheezes as my eyes filled with tears. I knelt like that for who knows how long. The night passed and the moon rose. At some point, I must have fallen asleep. Or maybe I just passed out from the trauma. Either way, I awoke to the sound of sliding gravel. It was in the very early hours of the morning, the east only a light blue. I groaned and sat up. My sister stared lifelessly right at me. I nearly shrieked, memories flooding back, and stood up and got away from her body. The future, which had seemed so bright yesterday, now seemed like a great black nothingness without Nikita. 
I looked around me, wondering what on earth I should do next when a bullet flew past me. So close I could feel the air move near my right ear. I felt adrenaline burst through my veins as I searched for my attacker. My assailant was a middle-aged man with a square jaw and hair graying at the temples. He was only several yards above me at the lip of the crater, leaning against a large piece of rubble with belabored breathing. He was barely alive. From the looks of his injuries, he shouldn't have even survived the night. That would explain why he missed such a close shot. He wasn't even reloading. But he looked at me with the same hatred I had seen so many times before. That look made me lose all compassion. Anger flowed through me, giving me strength. I rushed up the crater, knocked the man on his back, and straddled his torso before he even had a chance to blink. Why? Why do you do this to us? We didn't do anything to you. We just wanted to be in peace, to be happy. Why do you insist on destroying us? The old man chuckled and spat some blood upward, trying to hit me. But he was so weak, it just wound up on his chin. Peace. For your kind, what about the peace your people stole from my wife? Or my daughters? Huh? Do you think I'll ever be at peace again? <laughs> I was about to ask him what I had to do with his family when he gave a horrifying roar and thrust a glowing white dagger I somehow hadn't seen straight at my chest. I gave a growl of my own and swatted it away. Then, before I realized what I was doing, I slashed at his neck with my bare hand. To my surprise, my fingers passed right through his neck, severing his arteries and veins. Having already been significantly weakened, he died almost instantly. I sat there, straddling him, feeling just as dumbfounded as when Nikita died, when suddenly a sharp pain pierced my stomach. It took me a few moments to recognize what it was. Hunger. In hindsight, I thought it was strange how quickly it came over me and in such an intense moment. But I knew that I absolutely had to get something to eat. I scrambled back down to the safe room. I was too hungry to worry about avoiding Nikita's body. I frantically searched for the trap door, which I knew contained an extra stash of food. When I finally found the pull ring, I practically ripped the thing off its hinges. Inside were several old milk jugs. But instead of milk, they contained dark, thick, red liquid. I ripped off the cap and threw the jug back, letting the metallic, warm, wonderful stuff fill my stomach. Only a few hours later, I left the home I had lived in my entire life. I had filled a small backpack with smaller jugs of food and some odds and ends which I thought would make it easier to survive. Of course, I had no real idea how useful any of them would be. A city could be miles away, or just on the other side of the trees. Either way, I didn't look back. If I did, I knew I would find only pain and fear. Years spent being the prey. Years spent 
cowering to a faceless enemy. Not anymore. Now, I was the enemy. Now, I was the hunter. In our final tale, we join a man reminiscing about his favorite memory of exciting capitalism. You know that one specific day when we all get the bargains and snap up all the best promotions? In this tale, shared with us by author A.A. Peterson, we discover that this man's town has some of the most memorable deals going thanks to one particular department store. I join Atticus Jackson, Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, Jessica McAvoy, Aaron Lillis, Mick Wingert, Dan Zapula, and Kyle Akers in performing this tale. So head on down to Shandy's, where the crowds are wild and the savings will kill you, but only on Black Friday. What was my favorite Black Friday? I remember sitting on my dad's shoulders. According to Shandy's department store records, I must have been five. I remember it was the last time I was small enough to get on my dad's shoulders. The next day, he complained that I'd thrown his back out. From high up on dad's shoulders, I could see everybody I'd ever known in my life. It was like the whole world had turned up in one parking lot and I could see everyone at a glance. My best friend James Barber was there. His mom held his hand and led him through the crowd to get a hamburger all the way over on the other side of the Shandy's parking lot. Elena Ferrari, my neighbor and occasional babysitter, and the girl I liked before I knew what it was to like a girl, shared an elephant ear with her younger sister a hundred feet away. Far to the front of the crowd, in the unlit interior of Shandy's department store, I could see the silhouette of Mr. Shandy himself, fussing about to prepare for the ceremony. It felt like I was looking at the silhouette of St. Nick himself. You okay up there, sport? Yeah. Do you want a hamburger? Yeah. Just don't drop any pickles in my hair, okay, sport? I only nodded in response, but somehow Dad knew anyway. By the time we got to the hamburger stand, my friend James Barber had moved on to another of the numerous food stands that had been set up around Shandy's, and I lost track of him in the crowd. The food stands were the same every year, except for a little paint. Every holiday, they were pulled out of storage in the back of Shandy's department store and cobbled together by high school students to raise money for the school. There must have been two dozen, but not every stand was brought out for every holiday. Ten or so years later, I'd worked the frozen lemonade stand for our football team on the 4th of July. Sun up to sundown, 
but I'll be struck deaf and dumb if I didn't clear $2,000 that day. Thanks to Mr. Shandy, our football team took the field in all new uniforms that year. That Black Friday, Jeff Nudie worked the hamburger stand all by himself and was having trouble keeping up with the demand. By the time Dad took his place in line, it was over 50 customers deep. The poor dear doesn't have anyone to flip the patties for him. He can't make them and serve them by himself. Why, he should have two helpers in there, at least. Mom's hair never looked so shiny or so beautiful as it did on Black Fridays. She always spent hours doing her hair up when everyone else was passed out on Thanksgiving turkey. It was like she had a halo around her, like in those old biblical paintings. And no matter where she went in the crowd, I could spot her right away. I remember that day she wore a red dress, and she outshone every other woman in the traditional color. Grandma and Grandpa wore their finest church clothes, and Grandpa's tie was covered in tiny red crabs and even stain-free, a rarity since his hands started to shake from the onset of Parkinson's disease. I really wish Mr. Shandy would let someone else set up a stand here. Eleanor, think about how much money we could rake in selling hot dogs or hot chocolate. Grandpa made this complaint every year. For some reason, the example he always used was selling hot dogs and hot chocolate. Mr. Shandy goes through a lot of trouble to set this up. Not to mention the trouble he'd be in himself if the wrong people ever found out. All of it goes straight back into the community. He doesn't need you pestering him. You know how much trouble he's already had with the big box stores trying to move in. Grandma sighed. (sighs) Oh, dears, please don't fight. I'm not saying he hasn't done a lot for the town. Not at all. I only mean... uh, Well, he's been the mayor for 50 or more years now. Longer than you youngsters have been alive. Not one person on the town council will even ask him a question. Maybe he can share some of the opportunity, is all I'm saying. Well, you ask the people over in Oakville how they feel about their endless opportunities. There's barely a gas station left in that whole town. They can't even get a tumbleweed to breeze through, let alone all the business we have thanks to Mr. Shandy. If you ask me, if it weren't for Mr. Shandy, this whole town would dry up and blow away too. Still, a fella could make a lot of money selling hot dogs and hot chocolate. A fella could make a lot of money letting one of those big box stores come into town. But there's more to life than money. Money by itself doesn't mean anything. And that settled it for everyone. Blood for meaning. Blood 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 for meaning. After some interminable amount of time, the two teenagers who had been meant to help Jeff Nudie flip hamburgers reappeared, and the line began to proceed rapidly. You hear crazy Shelly Jackman tried raising a fuss at the town hall? I remember the woman who said it was a recent transplant from Oakville, and new to our ways. I remember she looked like she was testing the waters, and how bit by bit her tone shifted as the crowd turned to look at her. Shelly said that one of those big box stores would be more ethical than Shan's department store. I mean, can you even imagine? The whole hall laughed her out of the meeting. Why, it's ridiculous is what it is. Mr. Shan is the most ethical man in town. By the end, you could almost have forgotten the hesitation in her voice at the start. 
A man near the front of the line chimed in. Anywhere else, a store like Shandy's would barely pay minimum wage. Mr. Shandy pays three times that much and full benefits besides. Now you tell me that's unethical. You tell me when all those other stores use slave labor in all those other countries and take American jobs besides. They make little kids in other countries work their fingers to the bone to turn out cheap crap for pennies, then ship it over here and we're all supposed to pretend we don't know. Then they pay us pennies to sell it to each other. It's modern slavery is what it is. You won't find crap made by slaves in Mr. Shandy's store, and you won't find people who can't feed their families working there. I dare you to tell me the big box stores are better. It got scary quiet, and even from up on Dad's shoulders, I felt nervous. Everybody knew you didn't say anything against Mr. Shandy. Saying something bad about Mr. Shandy was like saying something good about pedophilia or Nazis. Except even worse. Well, it wasn't me that said it. It was Crazy Shelly Jackman. You know what she's like. <laughs> we should send the sheriff to her house and arrest her own principal. <laughs> the tension broke as people laughed and nodded in agreement. Nodded like they couldn't agree enough, especially the woman who had spoken first. Next year, she'll chain herself in front of the store one day and protest. Try to make herself the main event. That woman loves attention. You ask me, I think she's upset she can't be the main event every year. She'd up and take the spree for her kin every Black Friday if she could. Blood for meaning. Blood for meaning. When Shelly Jackman's husband got sick, Mr. Shandy fronted the money for the surgery himself. He's a good man. The woman should appreciate his charity more. By the time we got to the front of the line, the mood had grown serious and somber, and I was holding my little hands against my dad's ears for warmth. Double bacon burger? I only nodded my response, but dad still somehow understood and passed the burger up to my waiting arm. It felt like riding a bull as I ate it, even though dad was careful not to drop me. You need your gloves, love? My mouth was too full of hamburger to reply, but my mom still knew to shove them on my little hands. They were nice wool gloves she had bought at Shandy's a few months ago, and they kept the winter off my hands like the god of summer. Almost too quiet to hear, the front door of Shandy's opened. The crowd quieted, and we turned to face the storefront. Mr. Shandy walked out, leaning on his cane. They had only recently learned the alphabet, and I thought he was like an upside-down L as he made his way to the microphone. <clears throat> Mr. Shandy struck his cane twice on the ground. The lights of the store turned on behind him, like the lights of heaven. This is the time of year we gather to celebrate the bounty of the harvest. Winter is long and cold, and so we gather to share our warmth and to give thanks to the memory of another beautiful spring. Personally, I have a lot of thanks to give this year. Store profits are up 10%. Yeah! 
Without understanding what the words meant, I cheered as loud as anyone. I cheered so loud I broke my promise and dropped a pickle into Dad's hair. But he only brushed it out and laughed. You're the ones that deserve thanks. <laughs> you can go anywhere with your dollars, but you choose to spend them here. I won't lie, maybe it costs you a dollar more here and there. I never claim to be the cheapest, just the best. Yet you choose to spend your dollars here, even when it's late and you're in a hurry and trying to get home as quickly as possible. Those extra dollars have made our community strong. I've tried to repay your goodwill. Median household income in our little neck of the woods is half again as much as the national average. That's quite a feat for a town like ours, and it's all because of your dedication to this little store. Mom looked sideways at my grandpa. Hot dogs. She rolled her eyes, but she had a smile when she said it. I know we had a scare recently with one of those big box stores trying to come into town. But you all rose up and said no. And this whole nation can learn from your example. In this town, we sell and buy American so that we can pay American. You've been loyal to this store and we've prospered together. We've got a new gymnasium being built next year, and we're using local labor. You may know the man responsible, our very own David Stanlis. The year after next, we'll have a public indoor swimming pool, also built by Stanlis Construction. Unemployment is less than 3% in this town, and that's counting everybody from 16 to 65. One day, before I get in the ground, I mean to see that number at zero. We all loved cheering Mr. Shandy, because it was like cheering for everything good and virtuous and wholesome in ourselves. Still, we have to remember that some people are carrying more burdens than others. Some folks out there are still having a rough time of things. We've got to help one another give each other the benefit of the doubt. I understand some folks haven't been given the benefit of the doubt to Shelley Jackman of late. You could have heard a pin drop in that crowd. Now I appreciate you all defending my good name, but how quickly we forget the plight of people we disagree with. How many people here remember that Shelley's husband passed away last year, and she's been taking care of her boy all by herself? Or that she's been the school librarian all these years and is only making a teacher's salary? No, we all forgot, didn't we? We all decided to be mean to her instead, didn't we? How about we bring her out for the main event? Unlike every other year, there was no roar of applause accompanying the statement. Only confusion as the crowd tried to understand what was happening. Jared Jackman walked shyly out of the big front doors of Shandy's. He was dressed in his Sunday best, with a white button-up shirt and slacks, but he didn't even have a jacket for the cold. Shelley had been too poor to buy a jacket for her son. 
Jared shivered as he stood next to the microphone. His mother walked out a few seconds later, shivering as well, even though she was bundled up tight against the winter in a plaid smock. I leaned over as far as I could to speak to my dad. Why is his face so funny, Dad? Mom held up her hand to shush me at the same time Dad whispered up to me. He's a special son. Shelly, would you like to say a few words to the folks? Shelly opened her mouth, and her jaw clicked open and shut like a cat excited by prey. But you could tell it was more nerves than anything. <clears throat> it's been so hard. I work all day. My husband passed away, and he always said insurance was like betting against yourself. And my son needs me all the time. Go on. I look around, and everyone else has got nice things. And... I know in my heart that there's nothing I'm ever going to be able to do to turn my life around so that I can have these things. I love my son, but it's so hard. <laughs> she collapsed, crying onto Mr. Shandy's shoulder. For a whole minute, he consoled her in front of a crowd of 3,000 people. We could pick some of it up over the microphone, and it was so sweet and so personal that I really did think that Mr. Shandy was the kindest, gentlest, most noble soul to ever walk the earth. After Shelly Jackman regained her composure, Mr. Shandy leaned over to the microphone. Jared leaned over to the microphone too, which made Mr. Shandy jump. Poor Jared had evidently not planned a speech, and... He licked his lips for a long time before he finally spoke. My mom always takes care of me. It's my turn to take care of my mom. She deserves nice things. Thank you, Mr. Shandy. He sounded so mature that I thought he was a man, but he could only have been 15 years old. To this day, you can't find a single person with a bad word to say against Jerry Jackman. That's the holiday spirit if I've ever heard it. How about we give Shelley the spree this year and make Jared the main event? Again, there was none of the usual cheering, but a few people began to applaud, and the applause was deep and heartfelt and respectful. Jared was a hero to all of us. No person had ever deserved to be the main event more than him. Jared walked over to the red carpet in front of the store and lay down. Silly boy. He even started to put one of the shackles around his own wrists. The mood of the crowd lightened a bit as we all laughed. Silly boy, we thought. Silly Jared. Shelly Jackman put the shackles on his wrists herself. Mr. Shandy and the store manager put the shackles on his feet. 
Someone else, I can't remember who, tied the belt around Jared's waist so that he was stuck still to the floor in the shape of a star. We know why we're here. The modern world has given us much to consume, but man does not live by consumption alone. A man could have all the bread in the world, and if he hadn't bled for it, or been given it by someone who had bled, that bread might as well be ashes in his mouth. Some fools thought we could move beyond the need for blood with our technology, but there's a need in our human spirit to prosper through suffering. And it will be there so long as we're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. The state of this town, its richness, is testament to that truth. We prosper only so long as we recognize that truth. There's a deal every culture has made. In every part of the world, all through history. We give blood, we get meaning. Jared is holding our blood this year. Shelly, time for you to take the spree. Everything you can fit on a pallet is yours. Stack it high, Shelly. Buy American, spend American, pay American. Go into the store. Crazy Shelly Jackman wept, but she still stumbled toward her son and planted one delicate foot on his upper thigh. It was hard for her to balance, even in flats, but... She threw her other leg forward, stepping on his shoulder, and then leaped toward the store entrance. Jared stayed silent. I think at this point it was still a game to him. The Stanless family has raised more food for the food bank this year than the next three families put together. Why, almost by themselves, they've kept the poor people of Oakville going this winter. <laughs> Second up, the Stanless family. Everything you can fit on a pallet today is half off. Little Charlotte Stanilis walked up to Jared and looked back at her parents as if asking permission. Mr. Stanilis nodded and her mother laughed at her daughter's innocent reluctance. Charlotte hopped onto Jared's pelvis, making the young boy gasp. And she bunny hopped up his abdomen and put a foot on his face before walking to the store entrance to wait for her family. Her older brother came next. He walked straight over Jared like a diligent soldier without looking down and ignoring the sudden cries when Jared's nose broke. Mrs. Stanilis followed in a similar manner, all professional and prim, although Jared was wailing by the time she made her way over him in her high heels. David Stanilis, a man my dad loathed and called crooked and callow, turned to the crowd. He had the gall to step up to the microphone next to Mr. Shandy. Who thinks I can get the buy one, get one? <laughs> some in the crowd laughed, and some, like my father, grumbled that it was against tradition. Mr. Shandy shook his head ruefully as Mr. Stanless walked over to Jared, knelt down in a crouch like a frog, then leapt up bringing all 250 pounds of himself down on Jared's ribcage. Later, I told my dad that Jared's ribs were like Rice Krispie cereal, because we could hear them snap, crackle, and pop. Jared stopped screaming abruptly, but when Mr. Shandy knelt down by his side, he held up an OK sign with one hand to let us all know he was still alive. Mr. Stanilis didn't look disappointed, but gave an 
Ah, shucks, looked to the crowd and disappeared into the store with his family. Okay, how about we get back to the more traditional ways now? Let's do families with children under ten next. Dad and Mom made their way through the crowd, with me still on Dad's shoulders. But as the line began to form, I was placed down on the ground. Grandma and Grandpa wished us luck and made their way to line up with all the other elders. Stupid people always want to be first. Humans don't die easy, especially young humans. Someone always thinks that they're going to do it in one pop. Well, I ain't seen it happen one time. Better to be in the middle of the family line, like us. Mm-hmm. I saw James Barber up near the front with his parents and wondered if he knew his folks were stupid. Still, I envied him when he jumped up and down on Jared's still mostly unbloodied face before making his way into the store. I saw Lena Ferrari walk across Jared's body a few minutes later and dig her toes in his eye. And that made her eyes roll back in her head, and when she got to the other side, she was quivering and flushed red. And someone somewhere joked that she had better get married soon before she got in trouble. Embarrassed as she was, she wasn't the only girl to find out she was a woman while walking across Jared. It took half an hour for us to get to the front, and I pestered my dad with questions while I waited. Dad said it would take all day before the last person got into the store. No, Jared's mother probably wouldn't come out until the mess had been cleaned up. Yes, Mr. Shandy would help her transport all her new items to her house. On and on, I pestered him. When we finally got up close to where we could see Jared again in the line, which had bent and turned like a serpent, he looked like he was covered in strawberry jam. The air smelled like pennies. He was still breathing, and there must have been a hole in one of his lungs because he wheezed like a set of bagpipes with every short gasp. And when I saw Jared like that, I suddenly ran out of questions to ask my dad. It took forever, and also came too quick when we got to the front of the line. The closest thing I can liken it to is waiting in line for a ride at Disneyland. Mr. Shandy himself, sitting in a director's chair and covered from the waist down in a blanket, motioned for us to proceed. Mom hiked her skirt up, and it signaled a shift in the attitude of the crowd. This was the point where we could all get serious about the buy one, get one where Jared had been seen to have suffered enough that nobody really minded if someone put him out of his misery. I couldn't have been prouder as my mom stomped up and down on Jared, starting at one of his legs and barely moving much more than a foot length with each stride as she made her way up to his pelvis, up to his chest, and onto his neck and face. Her legs were covered in a fine red mist on the other side. Dad set me down, and I could barely breathe from excitement. I put a tentative foot on Jared's ankle. Somehow, small as I was, I heard a satisfying pop as it broke. I turned back to my dad, who smiled at me and motioned me onward. I almost lost my balance as I lunged forward and dug my tippy toes into Jared's crotch. The whole crowd laughed at that. It was considered bad form and poor taste for anyone but the children to go after the main event's private parts. Oh, 
Jared jerked off and almost threw me off, but I regained my balance and then stepped on his sternum. I heard his body crunch under me, and there was a little spurt of blood from somewhere up on his chest. It flew up like a geyser and landed on my shoe. Then I put a foot on his Adam's apple and kicked down hard to leap over his head. People talk a lot about the straw that breaks the camel's back, but that year, it turns out it was me. Mr. Shandy looked down at Jared in surprise. So did my mom and dad, their jaws dropping as Jared suddenly went still. The store manager leaned down and put his hand on Jared's neck, feeling for a pulse. I looked to my mom, to my dad, and to the wise visage of Mr. Shandy knowing that something momentous had occurred. Mr. Shandy saw my discomfort and disarmed me with a smile. He crooked one finger and summoned me over to his side. Young man, what is it you want more than anything else this year? I explained to him that I wanted a new video game system more than anything. Well, Mom and Dad, were you thinking of getting one for him this year? Hmm, I'd say he's earned it. Almost right. This year, he's earned two. This young man has earned the buy one, get one. And from here on out... Everyone who can mark one item of their choice in Jared's blood is going to get 30% off. Limit one item per family. Ten percent was common on Black Fridays. Some years, even 20. But 30 was a miracle that only Mr. Shandy's business sense could have possibly achieved. I was floating in pure victory. The crowd was cheering, one and all, and they were cheering for me, and for Jerry, and for Mr. Shandy, and for Black Friday. My dad made a hasty journey across Jared's remains, dipped one finger into an open wound on Jared's chest, and marked my forehead with the blood before he threw me back onto his shoulders. I felt like a king. I know we went into the store. I know we spent two months of my parents' otherwise meager salaries on luxury items, and that we doubled all our items, and that my dad spent the rest of the year selling the excess out of the garage. I got to sell the extra game system to James Barber myself, and I used the extra money to buy games for it. More games than I could even play by myself. I know we did all that. It was a blur compared to the ceremony. I do remember that when we finally left the store, that Jared was nothing but some red pulp and broken bones, trampled by over 3,000 pairs of feet, and that the store manager was hosing the ground clear and wrapping up the bones in the red carpet. We'd bury them at Christmas time, and the whole town would show up and give their thanks to Shelly Jackman again for her son's contribution to Black Friday. So, that's my best memory of Black Friday. I know some of you new folks from Oakville are still getting used to our ways, but I promise you'll come around. Human sacrifice has been the norm for almost 
all of history. Everywhere else is going through a blip is all. We need blood. Why else do you think folks in other towns go barging through the doors of the big box stores every year to trample the workers? Our way is more civilized. We acknowledge the need, and we do it orderly. Shandy still doesn't carry anything made by slaves, not even a single one of those cell phones that are made by kids digging up minerals with their bare hands. Everything in that store is ethically sourced. We take a lot of pride in that. I still cry sometimes for Jared. They're tears of joy when I think of what he did for this town. Every day I go to work, Jared's sacrifice makes that work meaningful. Stay in this town a while, and you'll know what the Aztecs felt in those early days of America, when they'd slaughter the people they loved to appease the gods. Sacrifice is shame and love so strong it can bind together an entire civilization. So long as people remember and believe. That's a power that can take on anything. I appreciate the paper letting me rattle on so long. It's tradition, but I know I'm not making the editor's job any easier. Grandpa died in June of that following year, and Grandma tried to hold on, but she only made it another two months. Luckily, Mom inherited Parkinson's from Grandpa and started to feel real sick in September. Mr. Shandy's son runs things these days, but he didn't miss a tick, and he reached out to us right away and asked if he could help. It's been a real hard secret to keep. I think Mom has almost let it slip a hundred times, but we're doing our best to try to keep it a surprise for everyone. I remember how much it healed my heart to read Shelley Jackman's story about her own favorite Black Friday. And I hope this does the same for everyone who takes Mom's blood for their meaning this holiday season. Mom has already started pestering my wife to do her hair up and get her a new red dress. (sighs) She's going to look beautiful for her big day. Dad has made sure we all get steel-toed working boots for our walk. He says that this year, he's going to get the spree, the half-off, and the buy-one-get-one. He always pretends he doesn't hear me when I compare him to David Stanilis. I hope the town won't take it adversely, because I know we all do it, but the whole family has been jumping on a scale to try to get as much force as we can. I'm up to 300 pounds of pressure. I figure that's more than enough to crush Mom's throat flat as a penny. I remember reading Shelley Jackman's story of her first Black Friday and it healed my heart to see how far we'd come from random violence with almost no meaning at all. I hope this helps you too. Anyway, thanks for listening to me ramble. And happy Black Friday to everyone. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I know Mom would hope you did too.
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.